Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 20. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's been 20 episodes of Authors on the Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today I will be chatting with author Teresa Frohawk. Raised in a small town in North Carolina, Teresa learned to escape to other worlds through the fiction collection of her local library, a real-life cyborg. She is a cochlear implant, meaning she can turn you on or off with the flick of a switch. Make of that what you will. She has turned a love of dark fantasy and horror into tales of deliciously creepy fiction. She lives in North Carolina, where she has long been accused of telling stories, which is a southern colloquial. I'm going to mess that word up every time. Colloquialism. I still messed it up for lying. Without further ado, Hello. ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Teresa Prohawk. How are you tonight? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. It's great to hear. Yeah, it's been a. Uh, like we were talking about off air, it's been a long couple of days, but it's nice to just sit down, be able to chat with, with you and uh, hear all about your writing process and get to talk about the Los Nephilim books. I'm super excited about it. Okay. <laughs> so how, uh, how, was, how was your day today? Say that again now. You're good. How was your day today? My day today. It was a busy day today. It was hard <laughs> work today. Thursdays are my evenings when I work um, until six o'clock. So I usually come home and rush dinner in and got things moving a little fast tonight. I'm very organized. I multitask all the time. But it was, <laughs> it was a good day at work. I, I had a good day. Well, good. So, uh, so what do you do um, other than write? What do I do <laughs> besides write? I didn't. I didn't know you wanted to put your audience to sleep on the first <laughs> part of. I, I catalog books. Okay, That's what I do. It's very technical. Um, I uh, examine mark records and make sure the information in the mark record matches the book in hand. Fortunately, I work at a community college library, which means I'm not stuck in a room doing cataloging all day. I also do processing and book repair. I help man the circulation desk, and uh, I really enjoy working with the students and helping them just with whatever problems they may be having. Usually, uh, I handle the small issues like helping them print and making sure they're getting to the right website. And then for the reference questions, we have a reference librarian, of course, and I turn things over to her. But it's um, it's just it's kind of interesting because it's never the same thing every single day. I've got a little something different always happening, and uh, it just kind of keeps the job interesting to me. And it's always fun to see the new books come in. It's always like Christmas. Every time you get a big box of books and everybody <laughs> runs over to the box and it's like, oh, what came? <laughs> and then everyone's calling dibs because that's one of the perks we get. We do get to read it first. So, <laughs> so yeah, so and it's just it's a great place to work. It really is. I like community college. Because I, I, you get such a, a diverse uh, group of people, uh, especially in age groups. We have people my age and upcoming. We have uh, early college, high school, where some of the kids there are just in their teens. So it's just it's a great mix of people, and it's it's just really a nice place to work. Okay, absolutely. So um, I know uh, a lot of libraries, at least what I've seen in the book community being a blogger is that uh, libraries also had the ability to get early copies of books. Have you had the ability to do that? Say that last part again. Have you, have you had the ability to get early copies of books at your library? Oh yeah. Just about anything you want. Um, especially, by being on the staff there, if there's a book I want that I can't get anywhere else, um, I'll get it on interlibrary loan. As a matter of fact, I had to get one. It was so bloody expensive. Usually I buy the books mm -hmm. um, that I'm using for research. 
uh, mainly because, not because I write in them, but I use sticky notes on the inside of them and mark passages so that I can refer back to it. But I had one book on music in the Third Reich that I just could not find anywhere at a reasonable price, and I was very lucky. I got that one on the library loan and was able to use it for parts of Carved from Stone and Dreams, just more to get a feel for the era than anything else. I really do buy more books than I borrow. I'm really, I have an addiction. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, I guess now's a good time to, to uh, say that I've got stacks of books in my house and a very tolerant husband, thank goodness, because (laughs) I don't, I, I need more bookshelves, but it's just, I'm, when I see something that I think I'm going to refer to a lot, I just go ahead and buy it. Probably more fiction than anything else. I'll get on interlibrary loan. And I also donate a lot of books to, uh, to our library. I'm very fortunate that I can afford them. And usually my writing helps supplement my book addiction so (laughs) I get so many books and and sometimes if I can't get into um there's no bookstore in the county where I live so if I have to drive 30 miles into Greensboro to get to a bookstore sometimes I, I just can't get away especially if I'm under a deadline so I'll have them come into the post office I'll just order something online and have them send it to the post office and my husband's started telling them, don't give her any more books. She can't read. (laughs) (laughs) And so he, sometimes he calls and he says, I was at the bookstore today. Something came for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah, There's a, there's opportunities where my wife uh, thinks it would be a good idea to tell all of the publishers that I have a completely different address. So they'd stop showing up at my house. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It really does. And of course, you know, I also get, um, I get books, um, for blurbs. Uh, David sent one from, uh, Emily B. Martin. I think that's it. Let me check her last name, make sure I'm giving you the right last name, (laughs) but the book is Sunshield and it's a new fantasy that's um, coming out soon, and it was so good. Um, yeah, Emily B. Martin, I get, I got it right. And uh, so I get books to blurb, and those are really great fun to have too. I've got to uh, do something with some of my arcs. I was getting with Emily, and we're going to have to see about figuring out something to do with them so that we can um, we can find homes for them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't like um, donating arcs to libraries. I hope I don't like having my arcs donated to libraries because I'm still not finished with the book at that stage. Right. So and so I would like to find maybe reviewers or something and we talked about also um, doing an auction for a charity. So kind of watch watch our blogs and our newsletters, and we're going to come up with something like that because I've just got so many arcs around the house. I really need to find, find something to do with them so I can make room for more books. <laughs> <laughs> you need to find forever homes for them. <laughs> <laughs> I rehome them. And then sometimes if... Um, they're uh, secondhand books that I purchased secondhand. I'll donate them to our library either for the collection or for uh, our own book sale. We have book sales where the uh, funds go to our library and kind of helps us get things from time to time to make things nicer for the students. So I do that a lot too. And every now and then, it, I think the hardest part is weeding. And I do that at work, but doing it at home is really a lot different because then you go, well, I'm never going to read this book again. And then I 
donated several that I wish I hadn't. <laughs> They've gone around looking for them, going, what did I do with that? <laughs> no. That just, I've got too many books. Right. But I right. love most of the books I have at home are nonfiction. Okay. Nonfiction. I have a World War II um, Spanish Civil War collection that can't be beat. <laughs> Some of them are World War One. So, okay. and they really help with the books that I've been writing. Right, right. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, about growing up in North Carolina and um, I guess going through school and how you got into writing. Well, <laughs> my youth, I grew up in a very conservative area, okay? Very, 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 very conservative and uh, I wasn't. So it was it was kind of like being raised by wolves. You know, you you were it was just a weird thing growing up. And I did not have a great childhood. <laughs> it wasn't horrible in the sense that we lived in poverty or anything. We always had plenty. But I just never really fit in. Um, and I've talked about it on my website, and I talk about it um, in person, too, that I was adopted. And um, it's it's kind of a, a something that I don't usually talk about because mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. You don't want to come down on my adoptive parents. I think they did the very best they could with what they had. And of course my birth family were, were in a completely different situation and they made the best decisions they could make under the circumstances. But a lot of times the adoptee as they, as I got older anyway, honestly, I can only speak for myself. As I got older, I had a great deal of difficulty trying to figure out, where I belonged in the world, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And it was it was difficult because especially in an area where everyone looks like everyone else and everyone's families, you can just look at somebody and know whose family they belong to. Because it's like I said, it's a very rural area. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's so when you don't have that advantage of uh, the physical uh, appearance nor even look like you belong in this area. Mm. People are always kind of questioning you. And of course, around here, it's always funny, even now, even having lived here almost my entire adult life, except for a short period when I've lived in Charleston, (laughs) they go, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it was, and when I, when I married my first husband, we moved to um, Hampton, Virginia first. He was in the Navy. And then we came back down to Charleston, South Carolina. And it was kind of great there because nobody asked you if you were from around there or not, because none of us were. And we didn't hang out with family, we hung out with our found family, which were the other members of, um, of the people on your boat. And that was, that was kind of who you hung out with and had a good time with those sort of things. So it was, um, and this was back in the eighties too. So it was just, it was a whole different lifestyle compared to what I'd grown up in. And I've just always, felt kind of out of place a lot internally, mm-hmm. even when, even with up, I was with people who really liked me, you know, and wanted me around. I always felt like the odd person out and it was a very personal thing. And I've also been through a lot of therapy. So <laughs> I've, I've kind of gotten over, not really gotten over. I've, I've learned how to cope with it in positive ways now. 
as opposed to letting it be something of an obsession for me. But you will see it surface a lot in my books. Um, you see it with um, in Miserere, with uh, children being taken from their families for whatever reason. Um, that was kind of the premise behind it. That And to me, it's always stepping through the wardrobe really wasn't a positive thing, mm -hmm. you know, for kids. And so uh, with uh, Lost and Feelum, I do the same thing with both Diego and Raphael. Mm -hmm. have uh, been taken from their parents for different reasons. And Diego, who had a horrible childhood, and then he's trying to make everything right for his son so that he doesn't experience all the things that he experienced. So a lot of that, you'll see it in my writing and those feelings of displacement and not belonging. But I've, I've learned how to channel it now rather than let it be something that gets me down. And even though I still have occasional bouts of depression, it's nothing like it was when I was younger. Nothing. Right. I highly advocate therapy. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! So, um, so as far as your writing goes, uh, tell me a little bit about how you got into writing, and maybe some of the influences you had that got you into writing. I think, and a lot of people lump me with fantasy, but I'm really, I really love horror. As a matter of fact, that's what I initially started reading. When uh, I was young, I was major, major Stephen King fan, and I'm, I'm not sure you can go to any writer and most modern writers now anyway, can't swing a dead cat without hitting the Stephen King fan. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, I remember being in high school and reading his books and thinking, gosh, I wish I could write like that. And I would just analyze them, you know, what makes them so great? And it was the characters mm -hmm. every time. And so, and it, it, it kind of appealed to me. And I realized that most of the books that I really started reading was really about the characters. Um, Patricia McKillop was an early influence. And Peter, Peter S. Beagle were both very, very, um, early influences. The Last Unicorn, honestly, was one of my favorite stories ever. I can still watch it and just get chills, but reading it, it was just magical. Um, so those are the kind of things that made me want to write and want to write fantasy. And I started writing when I was in my, my teens, my late teens, and I even had an agent and um, um, I kind of drank that whole career right into the toilet. So <laughs> I, I had an interesting early life. So in, <laughs> we're going to kind of skip that part because I have some memory <laughs> gaps there too. <laughs> but what happened was is I just quit for a long time. I quit writing. Um I had written one novel. It's a, it's a great trunk novel. It um, I don't even think I have a printout of it anymore. But what it was so huge. It was like, you know, the Lord of the Rings on steroids. But I tried to do it in like 350 pages. So it was this horribly convoluted thing that really was had a lot of people in it, but no central plot, no way of getting from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. So when I was in my, my 40s, my daughter had graduated high school, and she was doing well, and I was thinking, well, I would like to try this whole writing thing again. And it was kind of like we were talking about right before you kind of turned us on. It was, I was in college, and uh, I have a... a associate's degree in paralegal technology. And I also have several credits toward a bachelor's degree because working at a community college is really great. I could take one class a semester for free. So I had to 
pay for my books and everything, but the actual course I could take for free. So I took a bunch of courses. Um, and at that time I was losing my hearing. So I had kind of gotten to the point where I could not hear well enough in class. It was becoming more stressful to take it than just to scalp. So I went ahead and decided after, and I actually took Spanish before I got my cochlear implant and made it through two years of Spanish. And by the time I finished, I could kind of speak enough to be understood, but I could really have gotten proficient at reading it, which helped me later on when I was working on losnophilum. But at that time, I kind of stopped taking the class and I wanted to do something. And they had like online ed to go classes. And one of them was about writing. And I thought, Ooh, wow, I'm going to try it one more time and see if I can actually, you know, learn something here. And it was really great because he talked about the difference between story and plot in this particular one about how the, the story is about your character, your protagonist, emotional growth, and your plot is how you get them there, how you give them that growth. And for some reason, the way this particular course broke it down for me, it was very easy for me to understand. So it was in that course that I first wrote the synopsis and plotted Miserere. And I went ahead and my husband had knee replacement surgery. So while he was had his surgery, I was out with him and I had a new laptop. So I wrote the first draft of Miserere. And I was just absolutely convinced I had a bestseller on my hands. <laughs> so I joined the online writing workshop for fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And I posted it there. And they told me in no uncertain terms how badly it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went in my bedroom and I cried. And then I looked at what they said. And they were, they were very, very good people because they didn't really say it sucked. What they said was is they had problems with this technique or with that paragraph or there wasn't enough or whatever. And they made some very good critical comments. And when I went back through, I realized they were right. So I took their notes and I started working more and more with them on that particular one. And the cool thing about the writing workshop is you do have to pay for it. But the people who were commenting, they would read mine, I would read theirs, and we would each critique each other's works. I learned as much critiquing other people's works as I did just actually writing. Mm -hmm. So I went ahead and completed the manuscript for um, for Miserere. I used their comments, and I think it was it was a good book. It really was. It got off to the wrong foot, um, mainly because people thought it was young adult for some weird reason, <laughs> and they were kind of shocked. It, it goes back to my favorite review for it because this one lady, she was just you could tell she just did not know what what the hell she just read and she <laughs> I don't understand how this is why I mean this is this is horrible and then Katarina's just yucky and I'm going whoa dude <laughs> I can see where the disconnect hit so that was kind of um that was kind of how I got back into it again and so far as the writing process I don't know. I do better when I'm under a contract and I've got a deadline mm -hmm. because um, I have spent the last probably three or four years doing nothing but research and writing. Losnophilum. I mean, I have just lived in that world nonstop. And it's all been World War Two and the Spanish Civil War and spies and, you know, those kinds of things. It's just been great fun to do. But it was just like when I turned the last one in in um, 
February, I turned the third novel in and it was just like, man, (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a deadline. I don't even know what to do with myself. (laughs) So I've been doing yeah, I've been doing what I tell people they should do too. I've been reading OPs. That's other people's books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's nothing at all wrong with that. <laughs> I'm just reading other people's novels and uh, seeing what I've missed, and I've missed quite a bit because you don't realize, I think. I'll give you, and I can tell you how the process was. Okay, we already established a work full-time, so I write in the evenings and on the weekends. And um, after I turned in, Car from Stone and Dream almost killed me because what happened with that book is I was having an awful time getting into it. And Michael R. Fletcher really helped me a lot um, with nailing those opening scenes. And uh, even then the book was not going in the direction I wanted it to go in. I wanted it to be about the demons and Diego, and it kept wanting to be this war story. So in that same class that I had taken back, that writing class, one thing the instructor told us to do is when you get really badly stuck, stuck, if you suck, just give it up. But if you get really stuck, you need to just write the first scene that comes into your mind. Mm-hmm. So I did, and that was the scene with Mikkel in the um, in the cell, in that part of the book. And that was the strongest scene that was coming to me. So I wrote that and then wound up building the rest of the book around that scene. And I hate writing books like that. I never want to have to do that again. <laughs> Um, <laughs> ever, ever. And the other problem was, is, is during that time, I turned in Where Oblivion Lives, I want to say in in February. What's, I can't remember exactly when I turned it in. But anyway, when I turned in one book, you go for about, I don't know, a few, maybe two months and then I get the edits back for that book. So I'm right back in to the previous book. Okay, So I was working on edits for Where Oblivion Lives while I was also trying to write Carve from Stone and Dream. Mm-hmm. I was also trying to do a lot of research about that last period at the end of the Spanish Civil War. And there were just so many battles in so many places. It, was, it took me a while to figure out exactly where I wanted to start the book. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm doing research on um, France at the same time, and very fortunately I have someone in France who's just been a godsend to me because he was able to put me to websites that um, were in French, but uh, the subway system in France between the Spanish Civil War and World War II when they shut down a lot of the stations. And Charles de Gaulle Boulevard did not exist in 1939. You have to understand. Yeah, little details like that that you um, you have to pay attention to can be almost overwhelming at times. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on Where Oblivion Lives, which is set in 1932. Then I would have to shift gears and go back in the car from Stone and Dream and was trying to work through that, the book that did not want to write. Meanwhile, in September, oh, that was the summer I had to have knee surgery. So I was kind of stoned for part of that summer. (laughs) And... And then I had just gotten finished with my knee surgery. My husband had an issue with his heart, and and he was in the hospital for a few days. Then we had two hurricanes come back to back. So one of them knocked me offline for nine days. So I spent from December 1st until January 31st punching out 40,000 words. And it damn near killed me. Okay, (laughs) that was all I did. And my husband was a saint. You know, people talk about 
supporting writers. I would come home, he would have dinner ready, I would eat, do the dishes, and then sit down and immediately write from probably about 6.30 or 7 until 11 o'clock hmm. every single day, Monday through Friday, and then on weekend. And I hated Car from Stone and Dream when I was working on it. I thought it was the most horrible novel I'd ever written. And then everybody seemed to really like it. <laughs> and I got really excited about it. But that gives you an idea because I turned in Car from Stone and Dream and I had to immediately start work on um, A Song with Teeth, which is the third Los Nephilim novel. But by now I kind of had the situation in hand and I also had a better idea of how A Song with Teeth would would go so that one right now is waiting for my agent my editor to tell me what needs to be fixed on it and right now I don't have another book cooking so it'll be a little easier to focus 100% on that I got you yeah so the writing process itself it just it changes from novel to novel mm -hmm. where oblivion lives had a had a full synopsis so it just clicked right through Heart from stone and dream i had a general idea but i really had to sit down and hammer that one out a song with teeth i knew exactly how i wanted that one to go i didn't have a synopsis but it really rolled and uh, i'm i'm looking to do two different synopses now on different things so that I can kind of take a break from Les Nephilim and I don't know, I don't want to start another book without a synopsis. I just feel like I personally feel more comfortable having a roadmap if I'm going to be driving into unknown territories. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fantastic. Well, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Miserary? So I'm obviously somewhat new to your writing. I mean, I read Where Oblivion Lives just a month ago and then read Car from Stone and Dream since it came out on Tuesday. But uh, tell me and the audience maybe a little bit, because I know we've got a lot of uh, dark fantasy fans that listen in. Oh, well, <laughs> well <laughs> Miserary. Miserary was a, um, it was, it was when I was learning a lot about uh, Christianity at that time. What happened with Miserary was is I, I was in a religion class and I don't know if that's a good place for writers to be or not. But anyway, I was in a religion class and he was talking about the veil and the veil came down and my brain just started to wander. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was like this place in between heaven and hell where all the religions got together and they worked at keeping the forces of hell and hell. And I saw them really kind of like initially as policemen. And yeah, and I was going to do it like an urban fantasy and, um, and just have them like cops, you know, who come in. Um, I don't know if you've read the Eric Carter series by um, Stephen Blackmore, but I love his stuff. But if it was kind of like that, where you have not a private eye, but actually a police force that went after demons. And I'm not quite sure how, but it morphed into a, um, a medieval kind of setting. And it really worked for poor Lucian, who betrayed his, his lover in order to save his sister. And it's just another one of my weird little kinks is families and really people who are looking for some kind of redemption. And so um, in order to follow the... Christianity, it was a redemption story, but um, it wasn't Christian fiction, which was how it got billed, too. It got billed as young adult Christian fiction, <laughs> and 
I would like to go ahead and apologize now for anybody who read it expecting those things because you were very disappointed, I'm sure. (laughs) That was, mm, yes, that was not it. I wanted it to be horror, which was why I had it, uh, the bulk of the story around Rachel's possession. Mm Mm-hmm. By the, uh, by the worm. So essentially what it is, if you want a um, quick shot, guy betrays his girlfriend to save his sister and then escapes his sister to start home only to be hunted down by the girlfriend and she's not happy, okay? <laughs> <laughs> She is a very unhappy woman. My favorite scene in that book was writing the um, writing the exorcism. That was great fun. So that was <laughs> I love that scene. If anybody were to ask me to, to read my favorite scene from Miserary, it would always be that exorcism scene. I just love the way that went down. Um, the uh, as far as Los Nephilim goes, it actually started with a series of novellas. I was ready to quit writing, and because uh, I just I, nothing I was I was writing was really selling or catching on, and I was very discouraged. I I was lost all my hearing. I was had zero speech discrimination, so I was completely deaf, and I was just going through a bad period. I was very very depressed. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to write this novella, I'm just going to write whatever I want to write, mm-hmm. however I want to write it. And then if they, everybody rejects it, fine. You know, I, I'll just take some more classes and sit back and reassess what I want to do. So I wrote the novella, and it's about um, Diego, who is half angel, half demon, demon and that's, Goes kind of into that outcast kind of feeling I was talking about earlier, and he um, he finds out he has a son, and there's an angel in it, um, but he's not a nice guy at all. <laughs> he's really not a nice guy, and I wanted to set it in. I think somebody somebody put it the best. He really wasn't that into the novella, but he said he really liked my angels because they were merciless bastards who would stop at nothing to get what they wanted. (laughs) He understands me. (laughs) And that was exactly what I wanted to portray them as, and uh, as almost... um, alien creatures who are here from another dimension. They're not saintly angels from heaven. I just, I wanted to upend all that and uh, make it so that there was a, um, a whole different cosmology involved. Mm -hmm. So I just used uh, the book of Enoch to come up with a lot of my angels and some of the other old Testament pseudepigraphia, because I've got a lot of money invested in these books and I will by God use them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, um, so the angels are really not angelic. Um, they're always at war with each other and they also at war with the demons and the demons are really awful. And I wanted to use Moloch for a reason because um, Churchill had made a comment um, in one of his biographies or one of his uh, retellings of the war about how the um, the Nazi regime worshipped Moloch more than anything else uh, because of the, the number of dead. And it was a very, very powerful statement. I can't quote it off the top of my head. But because he mentioned Moloch, that was why I chose him. And so that's kind of the story of where we first see Diego. And because he was abandoned as a child, he wants to make things better for his son. And some people have commented that he, um, Diego, kind of, went into that a little too fast. They couldn't see a guy do that. 
But, yeah, I've seen guys do that. And I think the other thing I wanted to convey with the novellas was that there's these three guys. It's Guillermo and Diego, and Diego's husband, Mikel. And what I wanted to show was with three men who are like the man, the men I know in my life who know how to nurture one another. Mm-hmm. And they're not into, uh, yeah, all this toxic masculinity. They are, um, they care about one another very much. And sometimes they're clumsy and sometimes they don't do it exactly right or the way, you know, you would think they should do it. But they really try to support one another. And that was what I wanted to get into was that bond of their friendship more than anything else. And also the different, uh, the similarities between their families um, and raising young children, but you're in the mob, you know, and how do you do that? <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you be in this secret organization? And then you've got this kid that's so powerful they can take out a demon and uh, you're supposed to tell him, no, he's got to go to bed at a certain time, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So you've got all these little weird things going on. And I wanted to kind of get into that. So I wrote the three novellas and I wrote them um, so that if anybody bought the omnibus, it would read like a novel Um, in midnight silence would be the first part of the novel uh, without light of, or guide would be the middle and uh, the second death would be, you know, the climax and the end. Mm -hmm. So that was why I wrote them like that because we had talked about putting them in an omnibus. So I wanted anybody who picked them up could just read them one, two, three. Mm -hmm. And I designed them like the old, um, you're probably too young to remember, but um, the old shadow series that used to be on the radio. Mm -hmm. And they were really short adventures, but they all tied in together. So that was that was how I envisioned it happening. So I was really surprised because I, I was thoroughly expected um, that to be the end of it. But David had asked for a proposal, and so I wrote him one, and... Uh, I thought, he's going to reject it. As a matter of fact, I was already in the process of plotting a horror novel while I was waiting for him um, to reject it because I knew he would reject it. (laughs) And he didn't. He said, I love it. He says, we want to do three. And I was like, you are joking. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not really what I said. I just said, oh, wow, that's wonderful. (laughs) But in my brain, it was just like, I can't believe this because every time I've said I'm going to quit, something sells. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah. So I'll probably quit again in another year or so, and hopefully something will sell. But anyway, he told me he says with where Oblivion lives, he wanted me to write it as if the novellas didn't exist. That way, if somebody just picked up the novel they would be able to read the novel without having to go back and read the novellas. Mm -hmm. And so it took me a little bit of work to get it that way, but I was really, to me, I love where oblivion lives. I know everybody's kind of more in the car from stone and dream, but it was the kind of Gothic novel that I loved to write and uh, getting Diego into that haunted house was just to me, one of the, just a lot of fun to write. Mm-hmm. And then I've already told you about what a horror show Car from Stone and Dream was. <laughs> right, yeah. And, but I wanted to continue the story because I have an, a definite arc, the same way I had a story arc for the um, novellas. I had a story arc that I wanted to do for the three novels. And the upshot of it is, is, as you see the guys and how they nurture one another, you start to see more and more of the kids. So that Raphael has a more prominent role 
in uh, Carved from Stone and Dream. And Isabel has a prominent role too, but not quite as much as she does in the in the Song with Teeth, which is going to be the third one, and that's coming out in 2021. And in that one, it's almost all Isabel because she is such a badass. I mean, she just knows she is destined to be queen, and there is nobody is going to get in her way. She's going to take them down. I like her. <laughs> oh, Isabel is what I wish I was when I was her age. But I also wanted to show the difference in how they were raised. You know, Isabel has always been groomed for this role. And Diego's always been kind of lost himself. So Raphael is, is determined he's going to, you know, take command and that's what he tries to do in Carve from Stone and Dream. And the other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to show that teenagers, nine times out of ten, as much as we would love for them to be able to, are not going to save us because <laughs> they don't have the experience mm -hmm. uh, that uh, older people have. So I wanted to show how the parents guide the children let them go, but also guide them into the right decisions. And um, I think I think Car from Stone and Dream was a success with that. It showed the kind of um, situation that fourteen-year-olds can get themselves into. Well, not exactly with you know angels and Gregory and that kind of thing, but. You know, in real life, I'm sure there's other things that are kind of as scary as the Gregory, you know, like drinking on a back road at night and getting pulled by a police officer. <laughs> that, that's a scary thing, you know? especially if you're 14 and you don't have a driver's license. And I wouldn't know anything about those things. But anyway, <laughs> it, it's, it's about family, too. And I just, I like putting in all of the thriller stuff with the, uh, the Nazis. And, and um, I read uh, one book. As a matter of fact, if you read all the books, you can find it on my website too. I put down sources and inspiration for all the books. But the sources and inspirations for Car from Stone and Dream came down to two. One was... Um, the Routes to Exile, France and the Spanish Civil War refugees. Um, they recount several incidents uh, that the refugees faced as they were fleeing across the Pyrenees that February and into France, and they were not welcome. Um, it was really a horrible, horrible situation, and they were not treated well at all. And a lot of that you see in that chapter six with Mikkel. Um, I was able to utilize that. The other thing that's really super book, um, if you if you get a chance to read it, is Blitzed, which is drugs and the Third Reich. And oh wow, he talked about Perviton the uh, drug, which was essentially meth. And the Germans were taking it um, in hopes of creating the perfect soldier, and they basically turned them into berserkers. And they would stay up for like 72 hours. And after you read Blitz, you'll never read another book about um, the German advance through France in 1939 the same way again <laughs> when you realize that those guys were so hopped up on meth they were actually staying awake literally running over people to um to push through France in that surpri surprise maneuver and they couldn't have done it without the dope so huh. yeah it really is it was it was just when and when he when you read it in the book how it happened, he he recounts one incident with uh, Rommel, who was uh, later on known as the Desert Fox. In Blitz, he is the Crystal Fox because man, he's on meth. His job is to get those tanks across the river, 
and he doesn't wait and wait for the engineers to create the pontoons. So, by God, they're going to put them on ferries. <laughs> and it worked. Wow. It was amazing. It worked because he could have sank every one of the ferries and the tanks with him. But he he got the tanks on the ferries. They got them across the river. And the rest, they say, is history. So he just, it was just a massive, massive drug-induced push. And it also made the um, soldiers extremely aggressive and uh, that it was just it was a horrible situation. And then the the soldiers themselves, the German soldiers, were dropping dead of heart attacks. Um they would stay awake for like seventy two hours and then sleep for like two days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and as someone who's actually come across, you know, people on meth sleeping like that, you just you can't wake them up. Right, you know? exactly. It's, Oh, so that was that was the whole thing with that. So I wanted to use those in Car from Stone and Dream, and and it was a lot of work to get just the right amount of history because I think people tend to shy away. Oh well, it's historical fantasy, so it's just going to be like a long lecture, and it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. It was a fascinating period to be alive and uh, kind of like now, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Someone cursed me to live in interesting times. But it was um, it was it was a very fascinating uh, time to be alive because of just the sheer number of, of discoveries and things that were going on. But it was um it was a lot, and that's why Carved from Stone and Dream is really a um, kind of a band of brothers meets John Wick. You know, yeah. you've got you've got your secret society, and uh, they're in the middle of a war. They're trying to chase down a, a code book that's been stolen, and it's really, and then they find like you know this hidden laboratory, and it's just it was really exciting once I finally managed to get that plot line the way I wanted it, it it finally really started to work. But a lot of credit goes to my agent, Lisa Rogers, and to David Pomerico because their um their input really helped me get that book um in the right shape to be published the way it is. I just I personally don't see any book that I've written is being all mine. It sort of belongs to all of us because it's they just they're great. Both of them are. Yeah, yeah. And you and uh, you and Michael Maymay uh, both share Lisa as an agent, correct? Uh, Michael Maymay yes. wrote Planet Side and uh, was the last one uh, Space Side. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, space. And I think he's got a third one. Yeah, he's got a third one coming out at the thing at the end of the year. I'm trying to – I think we're trying to get something scheduled maybe in November or December for the release of that one. So Yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah, I like Mike. I met Mike in person a couple of times, and I just – I love him, and his wife is just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very lucky to get to meet a lot of the writers that I chat with online and they're all just as wonderful in person as they are, they are online. Absolutely. Um, so uh, can you tell me about any books you've read recently that you'd recommend to the audience? Say that one more time. No, you're good. Any books that you've read lately that you would recommend to the audience? Oh, wow. Yes. Um, <laughs> watch out. For Emily Martin's Sunshield, I think that's coming this this spring or this summer. I can't remember the exact date, but it's really great. If you love fantasy that's um, got political intrigue but a lot of action and adventure too, it's right up your alley. Um, I absolutely loved A Lush and Seeding Hell. Oh, it was so good. Oh, both of the novellas, um, I was so fortunate to get to read 
both of the novellas uh, as an arc. And I cannot tell, I cannot say enough about that book. Uh, the Grand Dark, Richard Cadbury. If you, if you, it had a very World War One vibe to it. Mm -hmm. If you don't know anything at all about World War One, you're gonna love it. If you know something about World War One, it will resonate with you a lot more deeply. But um, it's really, really good. I really enjoyed the Twisted Ones by uh, T. Kingfisher. I read a lot more horror than I do fantasy, um, and I'm not going to apologize for that because I just love horror. I still love it. And uh, when I can find good horror, good, well-written horror, then I just I can't get enough of it. And I'm also um, reading some nonfiction because I'm, I'm working on a couple of synopses for different things. And one of them, um, I read a lot of philosophy and poetry too. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I like to do that to myself. It's just <laughs> <laughs> Some of it really makes my brain hurt at times, but um yeah so that's kind of those are my big suggestions right off the top of my head the ones I've read most recently if you watch my um my blog I'm started a new um a new little series that I'm doing I do a couple one I do is filled notes which is kind of interesting historical things that I come across um in my research and the other is I'm starting to pick maybe about three books that really stand out to me and giving brief reviews of them okay. uh, on there. And if you just look on the right side in the sidebar, you'll be able to see all the little categories that I use. You might can find something new to read there, too. Fantastic. Yeah, I definitely agree on A Lush and Seething Hell. I actually was sent an arc of the sea dreams. It is the sky like super early, I guess last year. Oh, well, I guess it would have been before that. I guess it would have been 2018. Um, and then red lush, as soon as I got an E arc last year, and I know he's got another book coming out that he's doing through a small press this year called murder ballads and other stories. Yeah. I cannot wait for that book. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I really, um, and John and I both were originally published, believe it or not, by Nightshade Books. Okay. Um, back in the day, yes. Um, his first one, Southern Gods, was, uh, was really, really, really good. I will tell you one that I've just now occurred to me as we were talking to. It's not horror. And if people are really into fantasy and really love it, K.D. Edwards has... Um, has a series called the Tarot Sequence. And the latest one in that is The Hanged Man. And it just came out. I think the first one is called The Last Sun. Mm -hmm. And S-U-N. And uh, both of them, I mean, if you just want something that pops and you're just going to sit there and read it from cover to cover, usually within a day or two. It's just really, really good. It's like one part urban fantasy. He's got this really um, just excellent world building where uh, these deity-like creatures are uh, represented by the different houses of the tarot of the major arcana. And they have living in a place, um, they were originally from Atlantis, but when Atlantis sank, they moved to um, Nantucket and kind of took it over. Uh, <laughs> I think it is. And it's an island just off the coast. And they live there, but um, the, um, the protagonist is kind of like a private eye and it's just it's just really great great fun to read and but he doesn't flinch away from the darker aspects of the story and the one thing i love that edwards does 
so beautifully, so beautifully, is the characters. Um, all of his characters are just uh, perfectly, perfectly done. So, okay. I mean, you just fall in love with. That's my favorite thing, anyway, is the characters. I think that's why I loved um, John's novellas so much. They were just so internal and so much about the characters in a completely different style. So my taste just kind of bounce all over the place and just, I don't know. I just, I don't like reading one thing all the time. I just really enjoy reading all different kinds of things. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, though. I, I At one point in time, I read just fantasy or I would slip in a science fiction novel every now and then. Uh, and here recently, it's been a lot of horror and thrillers. Like, it's just been one after another, after another, after another. And I'll slip in a fantasy book, which is really funny because my blog, the title is Fantasy and Sci-Fi Addicts. And all I'm doing is reading horror and thriller novels. So luckily, I have other bloggers that can backfill me for that. Because uh, and recently, I've, uh, I would have to say as far as horror novels go, uh, The Only Good Indians by... Uh, Stephen Graham Jones would be one I'd recommend to you and anybody that's looking for a horror novel. I think it comes out in May. Uh, Paul Tremblay has got a new novel coming out in July called Survivor Song. And I'm currently reading, I'm probably going to mispronounce his last name, but I think it's Adam Caesar or Caesar. Uh, he wrote a book for Harper Teen called uh, Clown in a Cornfield that I'm currently reading. So I'm with you on all things horror. <laughs> it was just so much, so much good horror out there right now. Like it's just this giant resurgence. And then of course, you know, whenever John Orner Jacobs decides to, uh, to send out some murder ballads arcs to people, I'll shred into that super quick. So, and I'll make sure you get one too. I'll make sure John sends one your way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Teresa, um, I have absolutely loved this chat. I, I've enjoyed talking with you and getting to know you a little bit more. I know, you know, social media is only, you know, very skin, skin level as far as getting to know someone, but it's been just a fantastic time chatting with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Where Oblivion Lives and Car from Stone and Dream are phenomenal novels. And they're very character driven for any for all those that have to have great characters. These have them aplenty. Uh, and if you love historical fiction, uh, these are right up your alley for sure. Um, but as far as finding Teresa on social media, you can find her on Twitter at T underscore Frohawk. You can find her on Instagram. Uh, it's T Frohawk there. You can also find her website and her blog at tfrohawk.com. Uh, and the books we were talking about, uh, Miserary has been out for a few years now, so it's widely available. Uh, Where Oblivion Lives just came out in 2019. It's readily available. And Car from Stone and Dream, which is the... I guess you can call it the sequel of the novels that she's written in Los Nephilim uh, just came out on the 25th and uh, definitely go out and grab a copy. And then a song with teeth will hit in 2021. And I'm assuming February. Is that a pretty, that's right. Okay. I was about to say, we're going to go ahead and estimate, estimate it since uh carve came out in February. So, but um <laughs> Again, it's been a pleasure having you on, and we'll definitely have to do this again once uh, once a song with teeth gets close, and uh, we can definitely uh, let everybody know uh, what to expect from that one. So, thank that last part I was just gonna say we can we can let everybody know what to expect from it, what right before it comes out or right after it comes out. 
So you might want to give that one to me in chat. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's I'm, fine. It's completely fine. <laughs> no, I'm getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. I know it's getting late there. So uh, just wanted to say thank you again, and let's do this again sometime. Okay, that would be really nice. I would enjoy it. Fantastic. Try and do it on a Saturday morning when I'm more awake and rambling less. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Well, you have a great evening, Teresa. Okay. Thank you so much, David. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed my chat with Teresa Frohawk. Tune in on March the 4th when I chat with fantasy author Brian Nasland. Uh, again, on March 11th, when I chat with fantasy author and actor Luke Arnold. And then again on the 15th, when I talk to thriller writer John Mars. Uh, guys, thank you again for making this podcast what it is. We just hit 20 episodes, and I just think that is absolutely astounding. Uh, continue to keep coming back for some fantastic authors and some great chats. Thanks.